This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. And the last time we looked at understanding the signs, and this morning we're going to look at Christ's superior sacrifice. In addition to that, serving God his way, not our way. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He humbled himself. He didn't complain. He didn't say, well, I want a better way. He just obediently went to the cross in all things. And that's something that we have to learn as well as we emulate Jesus Christ. It isn't about what we want to do. It's what God will have for us if we're really obedient to him. And it kind of reminds me, this obedience and, you know, doing it the right way and doing it all the way, it reminds me about the teenage son who said to his father, Dad, I got my license. I passed. I want to drive the family car. So the father said to him, well, you got to show me three things. Number one, you got to get your grades up. Number two, I want to see you reading a little bit of the Bible every day. And number three, your hair is really long. You need to cut that hair if you're going to be in this house. So the few months go by and the next marking period comes up and the son brings his uh, report card, card to dad and for the most part he has A's and B's. Dad sees that he's been reading his Bible and they actually had discussions about it, but his hair is still long. So the son says, can I have the keys? And the father said, no, you didn't do everything I asked you, but you're two-thirds of the way there. So the son decides to challenge his father and say, well, you know, dad, I've been reading the Bible and... I've read enough of it to know it's not all about appearances, and I could probably make a good case for Jesus having really long hair. So the father responds to him. He says, that's so great that you want to be like Jesus. Just remember, he walked everywhere he went. (laughs) So the last time in chapter 9, we looked at Christ offering himself as a sacrifice once for the sins of humanity. We also saw that man is appointed to die once and then the judgment. We spoke about the ramifications of that. So jumping in in verse 1, in Hebrews 10, we're only going to cover 18 verses this morning. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Remember this transitional period. The temple is still standing. Animal sacrifices are still being carried out. However, Jesus already died on the cross and rose again and ascended into heaven. And really, there was supposed to be this transition, and a lot of the Hebrew Christians believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but the, some of the, in the religious establishment didn't get the memo. They were continuing to do these things. So this is this transitional period. And what we do know is that Christ nullified the effectiveness of the sacrifices while they were still being carried out, but in a few years, the Romans were going to destroy that whole system anyway. So it was going to be completely uh, destroyed. But the law and the sacrifices, sacrifices are part of the law, had good things. They were a shadow of good things, but they weren't the actual good things. We know that the law pointed to Christ. The Messiah pointed to grace, pointed to the new covenant. They were a shadow. It was a shadow or a foretelling. Now, I liken the law, if I could personify the law, to John the Baptist. Sometimes it's easier to look at it in a, in a personification. John the Baptist, number one, prepared the way for Jesus. And we know that the law pointed to Jesus. John the Baptist caused introspection. He caused people to look within themselves. He had a very hard message. It's a very hard ministry. 
And when John preached, he preached heavy. And the people looked at themselves and asked questions about themselves and where they were with God. That's a good thing. And we know that the law, when we look at the law and we look at the Ten Commandments, even as Christians, we see that we fall short. It reveals sin and the deficit. But it could not produce maturity and perfection. The law was limited. The third thing is that John was a great man, a good prophet, but after Jesus, he wasn't needed anymore. He fulfilled his mission. In the same token, the law set up a righteous standard, but it acquiesced to grace, the new wineskins, the new wine in the new wineskins. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, these sacrifices, for the worshipers once purged or cleansed would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, if truly purged or cleansed, the worshiper would have no more sin consciousness. The guilt would be removed. However, the people were reminded every year on the Day of Atonement that they were sinners. They were reminded every time they brought an offering to the temple and, and the animal had to be slain that they were sinners. It's only through justification, through grace, by faith in Jesus Christ can this guilt removal be permanent. I want to touch on that. What is happening in these three chapters is the fact that God is ministering to us in spirit and in mind. And we know we're trichotomous beings. Spirit, mind, body. And it's interesting because in our culture, we're always focusing on the body. How we look, how our hair looks, how our teeth look, you know, all this kind of stuff. And often to the detriment of the two most things that are important, the spirit and the mind. So let's look at this. Number one, the spirit. When we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we become thoroughly purged and cleansed from sin. This is justification. That's a big word. It's a theological term. And basically it means that I come to the cross, I, I see my need for the Lord, I, I read the Ten Commandments, and I realize that I'm a sinner. And I, I'm told about Jesus, I read about Jesus, I trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. At that moment of time that I believe in Him, I'm cleansed. God doesn't see me anymore as someone antagonistic towards Him because Jesus took my sins at the cross. I just had to, I had to, I had to choose to follow Him. I had to choose to humble myself under Him. So I'm justified, I'm declared righteous in God's eyes. That's impressive. Even my future sins that I haven't committed yet, the Lord died for those sins. The second point is the removal of guilt. So we're justified positionally, right? And we're forgiven henceforth, so there's no need to be overcome by guilt. Now, I meet believers, and I don't say this mockingly, and if you're one of those believers, I hope that you are freed from this this morning. Believers will come, and they're, they're Christians. They're born again. And they pray, and they ask for forgiveness, and they still carry this heavy burden of guilt with them where they need to sit in the office and, and, and get it off their chest. But even after that, they're still carrying that burden. If you're a believer, and you've truly trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't walk in guilt anymore. Let this free you. That is the beauty of the Word. The Word is freeing. It does so many things. God wants to give us peace. If you're dealing with guilt, let the Lord refresh you because you've already been forgiven for those sins. 
But under the old system, constant reminder, year after year, day after day, week after week, it was a covenant in blood. It was a reminder of the hopeless situation of mankind. Now, I want to say this on a personal level. Before the cross, and many of you, have, we've had discussions, what's our conversion experience like? We've talked about the void in our lives, the spiritual vacuum. Usually one or two things happen before the cross. We feel some guilt. This is before the cross, right? We haven't been cleansed by the blood of Jesus yet. We haven't accepted that. So we either feel guilt from sin or general unfulfilledness. That was me. I had everything I thought going for me. Everything that I set out to do, I did. And I still felt that void. I still was unfulfilled in life. I didn't hit rock bottom. I thought I was sailing pretty high. So it happens in both ways. But you know what's really challenging? When we have a loved one who doesn't feel either of those. They have the best marriage. They have the best income. They're always pretty upbeat, but they're spiritually dead. They're a spiritual corpse walking this earth, the walking dead, because they haven't trusted in Jesus and they don't see the need for him. Those are the ones we really need to pray for, and those are the ones that we often have challenges trying to reach because everything is going so well for them. The Ten Commandments usually helps, and, and we can actually, Ray Comfort has a ministry where he often uses the Ten Commandments to show people that they do lack and they have fallen short of the glory of God, and it's a very good tool. So we see at the end of these four verses that we need, they're showing us the deficit, the need for a Savior, the need for something better. And as we continue, we'll see how Christ filled that. Verse 5, Therefore, when he, meaning Jesus, came into the world, the incarnation, he said, and this is quoted from Psalm 40, a prophecy fulfilled, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. This is the Son speaking to the Father. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is actually stunning. A body you have prepared for me. The Messiah came through David, King David's bloodline. And there are similarities between David and Jesus. Of course, the major dissimilarity is the fact that David was a sinner and Jesus was not. But they both decided or desired to do the Father's will. So I'm going to give you a little background and then kind of go into it. God set up the sacrificial system to atone for our sins, but he wasn't delighted in sin. Why is that the case? Well, here's the answer. The more that the sacrifices increased, what it showed was that the society had become degraded. The more lambs, the more bulls, the more meal offerings, the more stuff that clogged the temple system that the priests had to deal with was an indicator that society was in such disrepair spiritually. So God didn't delight in it. He wanted the atonement for the people. He wanted their sins to be covered. He loved them. But it also was an indicator how bad society had become. The people didn't care. Now even today, some are careless with their sinful lifestyles. And they presume on God's forgiveness. And that's a problem. So here's the, I always say that the devil's in the extremes in Christianity. Some people are so legalistic and tight. You know, you, you, they're not even fun to be around as believers. You know, they're the church people that you, you, know, they, you, you feel uneasy around them. You know, they're just so tight. And then at the other extreme, you had people who are just so licentiousness. They're so carefree. They don't care. 
Oh, I'm a Christian. God will forgive me for that. They just presume upon his grace. So these are the extremes that we don't want to be in. Licentiousness and that legalistic or that guilt that we spoke about before. You see these two things working against each other. I want to read to you 1 Samuel 15, which is God's heart on this whole idea of sacrifices and obedience. 1 Samuel 15, two verses, 22 and 23. This is the prophet Samuel speaking to Saul the king. As God takes away his ministry as a king because of his, uh, he was a man of the flesh. He didn't have a heart after God and he often disobeyed God. Samuel said this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The answer is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Rebellion and stubbornness are celebrated in our culture. However, God says that they're vile. And he would have preferred that the people would have really had a heart for him. And they would, they would sin, and he, he provided for that. But they went in the other extreme and presumed upon his grace. Psalm 40 is uh, titled, Delighting in Doing God's Will. We have to ask ourselves, if we're Christians, we've been a Christian for a while, do we delight in doing God's will? Now, there's a negative and positive aspect to that. Sometimes it's, well, I I shouldn't do that. I mean, God, his will is perfect, and I know he doesn't want that for me, and it's harmful to me spiritually, so I don't want to do that. That's a negative aspect. But there's also a positive aspect. As we go forward into the world, a a brother just sent me a a text this morning and said that New Jersey is at an all-time high in poverty over the last, it's the highest in 52 years. Are there opportunities out there to, to be positive, to go forward and do God's will? Absolutely. To talk to people about Jesus and the way of salvation? Absolutely. This is a dark time in our country and the world. And if you don't believe that, you're in a very sheltered bubble and you don't read the news and you don't read the overseas news. It's bad out there. We don't have to walk far from this church, from our homes, to find somebody who's struggling, somebody who's contemplating suicide, somebody who's going to bed hungry. Or is our life all about me? It's the all about me show. I'm just going to do what I want. God's will be damned. I have a question. I want to break this up into two points. Number one, do we compartmentalize God into our busy life Or two, is he guiding our life? Because it's one or the other. Let me ask that again. Are we compartmentalizing God into our busy life? Right? Or is he guiding our life? Because if it's the former, and we're just kind of putting him in a little spot in our house and shoving him in the corner and putting the laundry over him and just kind of open it up when we need him, then our God is a small God. And when we're really struggling, we've, we've made him a little God. How much faith do we really have at that point? Or is your God a big God? If our God is a big God, then we respond to what the Holy Spirit is telling us. We respond maybe to the the, the young person, the cashier who's making very little money and they have that thousand-yard stare and they're contemplating their future and it doesn't look good. Or the, the person on the street, you know, that 
everybody else is ignoring and passing. And maybe God is, is, listen, even a smile, a hello, make somebody feel like they're human beings. It can't be, well, the pastors will do it. The leadership of the church will do it. I've got a busy life. Everybody here is a soldier in God's army. We talked about this at the, uh, it was an awesome time, of the, uh, the men's devotion yesterday morning. And we spoke about just motivating men for leadership. You know, I might be a lieutenant or a colonel. God is the king. But everybody here is a soldier in God's army. And the colonels can't get together and, and fight the war if the, if the soldiers aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not a good attitude to say, well, somebody else will do it. We can't have that attitude. As Christians, we're not here for our own advancement. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. Let me repeat that. As Christians, we are not here for our own advancement. We're called to glorify the Lord. Verse 5. And this is intense. Uh, chapter 11 is going to be a lot more applicable. It's going to be more encouraging and uplifting. But it, this is, it is where it is. Jesus gave up everything to save our souls. Do we show any appreciation for that in what we do? Or is it just lip service? Five, he says, a body you have prepared for me. This is messianic. Now, if you're new to the church or you're new to Christianity, some of this is going to be a little deep, but don't worry about it. I have, to, I have the interesting task of, of reaching the people who are new and, and know very little, the milk. And I also know there's many people in this church who really are advanced, and I've got to hit them too. So don't worry if this, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. If you're an astute student, you'll notice in Psalm 40 that this quote, you're going to say, aha, Pastor Joe, there's a discrepancy in the Bible because it doesn't say that. Look at your, prove me wrong, look in your New King James that we have all over the church. A body you've prepared for me, quoting Psalm 40, but if you go back into the Old Testament, it doesn't say that. It says, my ears you have opened or my ears you have pierced. This is a tale of a few translations. The... Masoretic, all right, let's go back. <laughs> the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the LXX, 70 Hebrew scholars in the time of the Grecian Empire. This is all historical fact. You can find this. They get together, these 70 Hebrew scholars, under the direct supervision of, of the high priest and the, you know, the religious leaders at the time, and they were very messianic-focused, roughly 250 B.C. They take their monotheistic God and show it to the Grecian polytheistic world. This was their goal. The Jews at the time had been so Grecian influenced, a lot of people weren't speaking Hebrew anymore, they were speaking the Koine Greek. So what happened was the Septuagint was given to the world so that the understanding of God in the ancient scrolls would not die on the vine. Very good translation. I actually have a Septuagint at my house. Let's fast forward, 7th century AD, the Masoretic text. Now remember, Jesus has died, he's rose again. The religious establishment changes their tune. They didn't get the Messiah they were looking for, the conquering political Messiah, so there was an anti-Messianic uh, fervor. So the Masoretic text was uh, translated, but it was softened. It was massaged. It was made without so much of a bite. Let's fast forward to the late 1940s, 1950s, the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a little-known fact. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, everybody says, Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls, what is that? Well, these were ancient scrolls found in Qumran by the Dead Sea by accident. They were dated to like 2,000 years prior. They were written in Greek and Hebrew in different languages, and it was the Bible. 
and they put these fragments together. The Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't support the Masoretic text, but it supports the Septuagint. And you'll notice that in the New Testament, when Jesus or others were quoting the scripture, they would be quoting the Septuagint version. This is so exciting to me. I mean, I just get chills inside because God's word will always be true. Man will try to sanitize the truth, and God's word is going to, it's like whack-a-mole. Man tries to pop the little heads of the gophers with that mallet, and God's word is just going to come back up anyway. The truth will always be revealed. So that's my excitement for the morning. Um, I hope you're as excited as well. But you can see that the Masoretes would maybe read the Septuagint and see a body you've prepared for me. That's for service. The son says, give me a human body. I'll go down there. I want to die for those people. I love them. Masoretes look at this and go, well, you know, I want to serve you or uh, my ears you have opened. So they, again, they, they massaged it and make it nicer. But I submit to you that the uh, Septuagint is far better translation and the Dead Sea Scrolls found thousands of years later justifies and reinforces the Septuagint. Okay, so verse 7. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Remember, this is a psalm of David. Is David speaking about himself? In the volume of the book, was there a New Testament at the time? No, it was only Old Testament. In the volume, in the multitude, in the compilation of the entire Old Testament, it is written of me to do your will, O God. I don't think David would say that for himself. He was speaking in prophetic terms. Now, let me... Turn uh, to John 5:39. This is great. Jesus says to the religious leaders who are opposing his ministry, opposing what he was saying, he says this to them, "You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me." Wow, what a grandiose statement. Jesus is saying to the educated, to the guys with the degrees, to the guys that were high in the echelon of society religious men. He was putting them in their place. You guys are teachers. You study, you memorize, but you can't apply. You're pedantic, but you don't live it. You're, hypo you're hypocritical. So Jesus is saying that everything in that Old Testament speaks of me. You show me any book of the Bible and I'll tell you where Jesus is in that book. Pretty impressive, isn't it? More proof of the prophecies. More proof of the Messiah in the Old Testament. God is solutions-oriented, and he uses himself to be part of the solution. Jesus said, send me. Think about that. He's in, in heaven. He's, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's the king. He's the maker of the universe. And he leaves that place to come here to take the form of a human body, not even a comfortable form, a poor person, live amongst people, be tired, be abused, feel pain, feel separation. So what? So he could die for our sins, for John's sins, for Les's sins, for Carly's sins, for Joe's sins. That's what he did. I really want, if I'm doing this properly, I'm trying to drum up a real appreciation for our Savior. And here's the question. Am I part of the solution? Because God is solutions-oriented. The more we're like Jesus, the more we become part of the solution of the world. Or do we follow the crowd saying somebody else will do it? It's not my problem. I'm busy. Do we become part of the church that's largely ineffective in Western culture? Or do we want to be part of the few, the proud, the ones that God uses? We say yes when he calls our name and we go forth and do it. Because we have choice. We don't have to. In my early Christian life, I was like that. I didn't, I didn't want to. 
there was too many other things I had an agenda with. I, I didn't want to do it. Eventually, as you can see, God's worked on me over the years. Verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. They weren't bad. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the first covenant agreement, that he may establish the second. By that he will have been sanctified or set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the law and the sacrifices, egregious sin, uh, the breaking of the first covenant, not by God, but by God's people. Jeremiah 31, 32 establishes that all the way back in the Old Testament. The son ushers in a new covenant, and you know what? The son says the same thing as the father. Some people think that Jesus came, and I've said this before, because the father, you know, hey, people, they read the Old Testament, he's, he must be grumpy, he must be angry, he must be mean. Well, they don't read the whole Old Testament and the New Testament to understand God's true character, and Jesus did a makeover. He had a, a, a makeover in, in attitude and, and, and such. But the truth is, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament son that the father said in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. John 14. Talk about obedience. Jesus said, Christians, you, again, I love when Jesus did that. You're either this or you're this. And we say, no, but I want a third option. I don't like. I want door number three. Give me something else, Lord. I don't like your two choices. Jesus says to us, you fall into one or two categories. For, for those Christians, do you love me? Yeah, we love you, Jesus. Okay, then you're in the category. He says, you will obey my word. Ooh, wow, gee, do I, do I even know enough of your word to obey it? Jesus says, the people that don't love me, oh, we're not going to raise our hands. Well, if that's the case, truly, you're in the category of those that don't obey my word. Remember I talked about licentiousness and wantonly. We should love his word. That's what it says in, in the Bible, that we should love it because God gave it. And the only way, honestly, I can't even follow his word unless I'm in tune to the Holy Spirit. It's hard. You know what I'm saying? I haven't killed anybody. It's a good thing. So I'm, I'm good on some of those, those commandments. But the truth is, it's only when I'm in the spirit that I can follow those commandments. If I'm in the flesh, I can't. But God provides the Holy Spirit for us. The question is, how much of the Holy Spirit do we have in our lives? Do we want? Jesus said, when you pray, as much as you ask of the Holy Spirit, the Father will give you. Wow. When, it's, when you talk about an empty cup and something that really wants to be filled up, well, I want stuff. I want a new house. I want a new car. I want... God's like, it's, it's my will on that one. But when you say, well, my cup is empty. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to be evident in my life. I want people to see that I'm a spirit-filled person. God says, oh, yeah. Well, get the funnel out. Get another few cups because I'm just going to pour it out on you. But we have to desire it. We have to desire it. Now, if I look at this relationship... Uh, and put it in modern terms, it's almost as if, let me just put it in our vernacular. God says to mankind, right, his, his covenant was broken. His marriage covenant with his people. It's as if God is saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is me talking, our relationship has taken a turn for the worse. You've been unfaithful. The relationship is in trouble. It's on rocky ground. But instead of dumping you, which we would say today, I've decided that I'm going to provide the solution even though it wasn't my fault. Where do you get a relationship like that? That's our God. That's our God. So the first was removed so the second peak could be established. 
And the second won't give away or won't give way to anything else because it's perfection. Verse 9, I have come to do your will, O God. And we have to ask ourselves if that is the pervasive attitude in our Christian walk. If you're a new believer or you're not a believer, don't fret about this stuff. God doesn't make us and, you know, press us and says, oh, now I got you in my camp. You know, I'm going I'm to torture you. He doesn't do that. You know, if we become a missionary or we become a pastor or we become whatever, you know, uh, just an evangelist, uh, God will, it'll, it'll be something joyful that we do. We will do it with joy. We will do it with his power. And we'll look back and say, wow, I never thought I'd be doing this. So understand that. But when we look at serving God, it involves a few things that if we don't do, and sometimes they can be dirty words in our Western culture, if we don't follow, it's going to be difficult. You want to serve God? It's going to come with a cost. Number one, sacrifice. You show me any godly person in the scripture, any of them, male, female, wherever, and I will show you people in the scripture that gave up something. They gave up something, their time, their money, their maybe other ideas of their future. Sacrifice. Doing God's will, serving, being a leader, it involves giving something up. Another tough word is commitment. They committed to God. Abraham, pack up. Take every, all your stuff, get out of that country. You're going to go you know, hundreds of miles away and then wait for instructions. Wow. Imagine if he said that to us. Well, you know, Lord, I got a good job. Yeah, I just bought another house. I put a wing on it. I'm... Commitment. Follow through. Self-denial. American culture teaches us not to deny ourselves anything. But God says you need to deny yourself. Come follow me. You need to be an empty vessel. Obedience. Obedience. Maybe come in the form of something we don't like may come in the form of a sponge or a broom or something that God asked us to do that we might think is beneath ourselves. Obedience. Imagine if Jesus said, I don't want to, it's too hard, looks scary, it's going to make me look bad, rather stay here on the throne. He didn't because he loves us. Verse 10. Basically says, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for his service. What does that mean? Another big word, consecrate, sanctify. That sounds really scary, Pastor Joe. Does that mean I have to live in a monastery and take a vow of poverty and all that stuff? No, it's not what that means. All it means, very simple, is to be set apart. Is that we look less like the world, in simple terms, what everybody else is doing that's wrong, and we look more like Jesus. And people say, there's something different about you. You're not like the rest of the employees here trying to get one over on the boss, you know? There's something different about you. You know, you seem to take things in stride and, and not really lose it every time some bad thing happens in your life. To be set apart. Now, in the Old Testament, people were sprinkled at times with the blood of the sacrifice to consecrate them. However, we've been figuratively sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. He shed his blood so that we could have everlasting life and we can grow in our faith to be more like him. Remember, the old covenant was an outside consecration. The new covenant was sanctification that was on the inside. And this is important. 
inside, inside, inside. Again, we're going to jump to chapter 11. It's going to be really exciting, and we're going to go in a different direction, the writer of Hebrews. Uh, but we're in these last few chapters, and what we keep seeing is this understanding about inside. And it's, it's going to be hard for some of us to break the idea of everything is on the outside. What I wear, what my hair looks like is not important. If I come in and say, hey, praise brother to everybody, that is not necessarily important because sometimes we can play church, can't we? We just had a... Listen, <laughs> well, I remember when we used to go to Old Bridge, sometimes my wife and I were arguing in a car and then as soon as we get out of the car, we'd smile. Hello, everyone. <laughs> you know? It's the inside that matters. And even churches, and it's sad to see so many churches follow this man-centered worldly template about what things look like. How do we get more people in the church? How do we get more tithe money? And then what they'll do is they'll say, well, gee, we want to make Jesus more attractive. And all the statistics show that church attendance is declining in America. So what we do is we, we water down the gospel. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about the blood. We don't talk about judgment. None of that stuff. And then more people start to come in. But what happens? It's, it's a facade. It's a show. And what, all you get is more carnality that grows into the church. And that's not healthy. You see, in the church of Sardis, Jesus said to them, and, and if you read the book in Revelation, Sardis looked like, probably from the outside, a very cool, hip church with a lot of people and a lot of events going on and a lot of servants. And Jesus said, you have a name that you were alive, but you are dead. He had to tell them they were dead. You forgot about me. Go back. You, you're missing something here. So we need to be careful of worldly methods to revitalize the outside when it should be coming from the inside. So we see at the end of these verses that there's a provision and efficacy of the superior sacrifice that God provides through his son Jesus. 11 through 14. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Remember this was still going on as the writer of Hebrews was talking, the sacrificial system, but it didn't mean anything to God. But this man meaning Jesus, he came in the form of a man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So we understand the finality and the perfection of the superior sacrifice that we have in Christ. What the priest did was a continual, on a continual basis, over and over and over, and they could never rest because it was never a once and for all sacrifice. What Jesus did, he did once, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made his footstool. And this isn't talked about that much, but that means that there's a future battle that's going to take place, and there will be good and there will be evil. And we get to choose what side we want to be on. For those that reject God and reject his sacrifice, they're going to be the ones that Jesus faces as he comes out of heaven riding on that horse with that sword that proceeds from his mouth, those blazing eyes, that white hair, um, I don't want to be, I want to be behind him. I don't want to be the guy he's facing, trust me, with that sword going all over the place. So just keep that in mind. I mean, that is something that is going to take place in the future. Verse 14, let me read that again. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It's nice to know what Jesus did for us is not a temporary thing. When Jesus saves us, there's no expiration date. 
There's no time where God in eternity is going to say, I'm done with all you people. I'm going to start all over again and just wipe you all out. No. This is forever. We are perfected. We're justified forever. I know it's hard for us to believe because everything has a catch. Everything has an expiration date. Everything has a warranty expiration, but not this. And notice this. He's perfected forever those that are being sanctified. That means that God has a goal for every one of us in this room to be sanctified, to be more like him, to be set apart from the world, from carnality. And I ask this question, when we think about our lives as Christians and we think about our future goals, does, do any of it involve sanctification? Well, by virtue of doing this, I have no choice but to beg for sanctification. But everyone is just as important as being up here. We all have a role, we're all foot soldiers. Part of our goal should be asking God to sanctify me more, help me to be more like Jesus. And you know what? When we're like that, what I find is, and I, I see that with myself and others, we're not so unstable anymore. It starts to stabilize us. Because James tells us that the double-minded person is unstable in all of his ways and her ways. You're in the world, you're in Christianity, you're in the world, and then yelling and screaming, blaming God, this, this person didn't do this for me. Your whole focus is off because of double-mindedness. It causes confusion because you're trying to walk in two worlds and it's very difficult to do. At least when, we were, when, when I was in the world and I was in my sinful lifestyle, I was unstable, but I didn't know it. I was a walking corpse, but I didn't know it. And I was pretty unified in my sin. When I became a believer, it, it became difficult because now I still had the old flesh, but I had a new nature, and it was a constant battle. And it will be until the day that we die because we're stuck in this fleshy body, this body of death, as the Apostle Paul says. Last few verses. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now this comes from Jeremiah 31, which we've talked about extensively. God has provided the remedy, the remedy for man and woman's sinfulness in Jesus Christ. For the Hebrew Christians, they needed to stop going back to the external stuff and the external uh, ceremonial rites because they were purified from the inside through Jesus. They were going to, back to something that had no significance anymore. But we're not the Hebrew Christians. For us, he streamlined it into one way and one gift. It's, you know, I don't like a whole bunch of choices. I really don't. It just gets too confusing for me. But God says, listen, there's only one way. You could be poor. You could have no friends. You could be kicked to the curb all your life. You could have sinned all your life. All these things. And guess what? You have the same standing as anybody else who comes to the cross. That's pretty impressive. He streamlined it in a way that it's fair to everyone. We don't get to heaven by different standards. Brothers and sisters, this is an apex or a climax in the book of Hebrews. We see Jesus' obedience, but we're also called to be like him. He took unlearned men, uneducated men, rough around the edges. He took 12 of them, 
and he had expectations for them. They were to carry on physically the church after his departure. They had to be Christ-like or they were not going to survive. And if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, even in their death, they still maintain true to their calling. Try to do that in the world. Not so easy. I want to leave you with this. In 2 Samuel 24, David goes to buy a threshing floor and oxen from Aruna. We covered this in 2 Samuel. And Aruna says, oh, you're the king. I'll give it to you for nothing. But David was going to use it to sacrifice to the Lord. And David says this. He says, how can I offer burnt offerings to the Lord which cost me nothing? Today, brothers and sisters, how much do we love him? Is it an emotional, gushing, effusive, oh, I love Jesus. I'm so in love with the thought of him. But we don't give him anything. Or we leave the scraps of our time and everything we have, we put the scraps together and say, oh, Lord, the American dream comes first. You know, hey, I'm in America. Here, here's the scraps. David said, I will not give to the Lord which costs me nothing. Folks, when we live our lives the way we want and we blame it on the fact that we're Americans and we can and we give him the scraps, that is pathetic. It's pathetic. And if people leave because of this, then go find a church where they preach happy things every Sunday. But you're not getting the truth. Our culture is degraded. It's no different than what was going on back then. It's just... It's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's, it's going on in this country. All you have to do is read the paper. Teens are in decline. They're, they're traveling in packs, and they're killing people. This is a constant basis. Is anybody reaching out to these kids before they're influenced negatively? And then we want to blame them and the parents and everybody else, but we don't want to lift a finger to come out of our American comfort zones and minister to somebody else who might be a stranger. The colonels and the generals can't do it all. We all have a responsibility. Something will have to be cut if we really decide to serve the Lord, and some of it may be our pride. Because every person in the Bible who served God, you, I challenge anybody to go through this book and find me one person that didn't sacrifice something, not a relationship, not their time, not their finances, not their attitude, not their future dreams to serve the Lord. So why should we be any different in our culture? Maybe it's, listen, I, I, if, if I'm intense, it is what it is. Maybe 22 years of seeing people die, maybe looking at overseas news and seeing what's happening across the seas, this world is a mess and God is looking for some lights in the world that he can use and he can shine through. Whether it's Second Chronicles in the Old Testament or Jesus in the, in the New Testament, it's clear that God looks and Christ looks and the harvest is ready to be picked and there's very few laborers. Very few. Chronicles, you know, the Lord's looking to and fro across the face of the earth. He's looking for somebody that he can show himself strong through. Brothers and sisters, will you be that person today to raise your hand and pray when you get home and say, Lord, whatever it is, I want to be used by you. Will you do that? Will you stand up for him? I don't want to go down when the, when the Lord comes back for his people and just be just as decadent as the culture that surrounds us. I don't want to be that. I want something better, but I can't do it myself. The pastors can't do it ourselves. 
if we really buy into understanding the superior sacrifice, not just pages on a book that the Pharisees did. That's why they were hypocrites. They believed it, they knew it, they studied it, but he didn't lift a finger to help anybody. And Jesus said, you guys are hypocrites. He told his followers, do what they say because they know that law, but don't follow them because they sit on their duffs and they want to be ministered to all the time. If we really buy into understanding the superior sacrifice that Christ offers and we receive the benefits of it, then our actions will follow it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, help to... Lord, there's just been so many revivals over the last few hundred years and, and it started with individuals. It started with people and changing in their community. Uh, there were, in some, that was... A, I forget all the names jumbled up, Finney and others, where the taverns were...